This show contains adult language and occasional descriptions of violence. Please keep that in mind when choosing when and where to listen. Previously on Dying for a Fight. I wanted to use my white power against them. And because I did that, they turned up a notch on me and, and I just kept turning it back up. You literally just went and murdered this dude and yet you can't solve this? Are you fucking kidding me? You have all that information and you've done nothing with it because you don't give a damn about the left. I know there was video that the investigators reviewed. I'm not sure exactly what, what all that contained. He was still breathing. I gave him CPR in the back seat on the way to the hospital, but he couldn't respond. But when, you know, two skinheads show up covered in blood yeah. with another dead skinhead, you know, it was like flies on shit, really. Like, they just figured something was up. Rich people don't get run over in the street outside of the bar at the end of the night. But this is a thing that happens to poor people and to working people. For what was supposed to be our final interview with Laura, we wanted to find a comfortable place to meet. We wanted to tell her about everything our investigation had revealed by that point. So we rented an apartment in an upper-middle-class Portland neighborhood. Check, 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 check. Grant Irving and I got there early to set up the microphones. We chose a room furnished with reclaimed wood furniture pieces. The couch sat in front of a brick wall with a stained glass window. We set out some chips and other snacks. And Micah Fletcher decided to join Laura as we talked. You're doing it with a friend this time. I know. We'll see. Yes, thank you. I was preparing for what I expected to be a hard conversation. And it had been a while since I had seen Laura in person. Laura, can you, uh, hi. Hello. Can you tell me a little bit about what you've been up to? Just since the last time we talked. I've just been gardening and working. How's the gardening? Great. It's overgrown and I'm going to have a lot of produce. Um, I, you know, as, as you know, I don't eat vegetables, so we have nothing in common there. Well, you should just die. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> Laura had her usual sense of humor and good spirits, but that went away when we started to play her tape from our interview with Portland Police Commander Jeff Bell. And so some of those folks who know that information have not come forward or have not. Some of that information has come to the investigators third and fourth hand, but you can't use hearsay in court. Fucking bullshit. So you're telling me actual evidence is not usable? No, they, they have the fucking videotapes. That, that's fucking bullshit. Laura's frustration came in part because of this call for witnesses. Police have told us they want witnesses, like Sean's friends, Switch and Lucky, to talk to them again if charges are going to stick in this case. And it's something police have told Laura since Sean was killed. Even when Laura told the district attorney's office the names of the two men the anti-fascists had accused as Sean's killers, Laura says law enforcement wanted to know how she got that information. That included the lead detective, Scott Broughton. So Broughton wanted to know where I got my information. And I said, you, you haven't called me once. I've left how many messages? He goes, well, I just need to know where you got the information. You need to come downtown. And I'm like, I'm not coming down. He goes, well, we can come get you. I said, fucking bitch, come. Come to my house. Bring me downtown. Do it. What do you say? He's like, well, you know, your tone. And I hung up on him. Then he called me back. And he goes, we really need... I said, no, you need to go fuck yourself. I hung up because they already had that information. From what Laura has told me, anti-fascist researchers had gathered information on the people they believe were in the SUV 
that killed Sean and delivered it to her, they developed leads that Laura wasn't hearing from the detectives. Throughout the many hours that I've talked to Laura, I've picked up clues about what information she might have. One of the guys I'm sure talked to one of their fellow employees. Like, are they not investigating? Are they not actually doing their freaking job? Laura believes police have all the evidence that she has. That's part of why she's frustrated. I also have felt that frustration, trying to gather information on this case. Our team has filed numerous public records requests trying to learn what the police do know or what they have done. But at each turn, law enforcement has refused to turn over interrogation notes, police reports, or emails and text messages that might shed some light on this case. Police say they want to protect the integrity of the investigation because it is still ongoing, even after two years. So the records we did get back were mostly hundreds of pages of press releases about Sean's homicide. And also staff memos where officers warned that memorials for Sean might be worth monitoring for anarchist activity. Police and Laura have both asked me to trust them. I don't have all the information the police have, and I don't have all the information Laura has. But I knew that if I ever really wanted to learn who killed Sean Kellier, or whether Portland police have done everything they could to investigate the case, someone would have to let me in behind that curtain of secrecy. So uh, the, the, the two names uh, of you just mentioned, mm-hmm. how do, how, what's the evidence linking them? Uh, like, what's the stuff that you got presented that you go, that's these guys? I cannot answer. Without trying to press you, um, it's something that we've been coming back to because we're thinking, okay, what, what was it that convinced you? I can't answer that. Mm-hmm. And, and I feel bad because I, I want to be able to clearly articulate, but I also have to think about other people. And as much as I want, you know, I just can't. Um, and is, is there any way like we would be able to see the evidence? Micah sat forward in his chair at this point. It seemed like he wanted to hear the answers as well. And Laura looked like she wanted to answer but she wasn't sure how she could while still protecting her sources. Can you turn the mics off? I would like to turn the mics off. Laura and Micah left the room. Laura said she wanted a cigarette. I waited for a few minutes. And when she came back, she decided she wanted to help me, but with the mics off. She gave me a hint, a direction to look in. And that direction would eventually lead me to someone who had new information about Sean's case. Something even the police don't have. From something else in Oregon Public Broadcasting, this is The Fault Line, dying for a fight. I'm Sergio Olmos. The case over Sean's killing has seemingly made no legal progress for two years. Police have not told Laura what they've done to get any closer to an arrest, and it's not clear that a prosecution is any closer to happening. The law enforcement sources we spoke to have said that's at least in part because witnesses won't talk. That's even though Switch and Lucky, the men that Sean was with the night he was killed, talked to us and told their story to police when they were arrested and interrogated. Laura says in the beginning, the police even asked her to get Switch and Lucky to talk. They basically have been like, you need to tell them they need to do this, you need to do that. 
And I'm like, fuck you, just go solve the case. You don't care about who killed my child. Don't, you know, I, there is no way I can tell somebody else to go against their morals and do that. So we're clear, the police did ask you to go talk to the boys and, and change their minds. The police point blank said that if I really wanted it solved, that's what I needed to do. Laura knows Switch and Lucky don't like the police and won't talk to them further because of their principles around prison abolition. With the first meeting with that one deputy district attorney, they were like, well, you, you know, if you really want this case to go forward, you need to tell people that this is, that they need to testify. I want justice for my son, but I cannot ask them to go against their own moral beliefs. I I can't do that. And that's not fair for the police to ask me to do that. Laura has attended several meetings with the district attorney's office over the past two years. At times, these meetings have been to announce new prosecutors taking over the case due to staff changes. But they proved frustrating for Laura because prosecutors didn't seem to have an answer for the question she really wanted to know. When is Sean's case going to be resolved? And turnover in the district attorney's office could be one reason the case has been so slow to progress. Prosecutors handling her case have moved on to other jobs or have been promoted. In fact, as we were reporting this series, the DA's office assigned a new person to handle the case. It was the third time in two years, and I learned it's the same prosecutor who was pursuing charges against Joey Gibson for the Cider Riot Brawl in 2019. With the unrest of 2020 behind us, we wanted to know if there was finally progress being made in this case. In August, just before I got that fresh lead that Laura told us off mic, producers Conrad Wilson and Ryan Haas set up a meeting with the elected local prosecutor, Mike Schmidt. Because Sean's killing is an open homicide investigation, Schmidt's office asked for questions in advance. While that is a highly unusual request, we decided to comply because it meant we might finally get answers for Laura and for ourselves about where this case stood. And then on the morning of August 6th, less than an hour before the meeting, Schmidt's office emailed Conrad and Ryan. They said they would not answer 16 of the 24 questions given to them in advance. Some of the questions were specific to the investigation, like, do you have a plan for how to prosecute this case? But other questions they rejected seemed like they should have been answerable, like, how do you prioritize homicide cases? Or, is this case solvable? Okay, well, um... I guess we'll just, um, we'll figure it out. Yeah, we'll figure it out. Um, oh, Mr. District Attorney. Hey, hey. Good to see you. Ryan. The District Attorney met with our producers in a conference room just off his sixth floor office. The glass walls of the high-rise building made the room bright. We sent you questions in advance about this case. That's mm-hmm. unusual for us. And we did it at a request because uh, we're talking about an open investigation. Um, there's a number of questions that you and your officer say you, you can't talk about. Could we just talk, just why not? Yeah. You know, why are some of these questions that we have unanswerable at this point? Yeah, I appreciate that. And it, I don't, uh, when I give interviews, don't uh, typically request questions in advance. But because we are talking about an open case, um, there are many things that I either cannot or, or would not comment on. And that really is um, for investigatory purposes. We don't want anything that we say to impact the case in a way that could either downstream destroy the credibility of evidence uh, or potentially have 
certain individuals want to obscure or obfuscate evidence. Of the limited questions Schmidt agreed to answer, one was paramount for us. Is this case unsolved because of Sean's politics? You know, first of all, um, I just want to say that, that my heart goes out to, to Laura. Uh, and I'm a parent. I can't imagine uh, what it's like to, to lose a child. It's not supposed to happen. And so you know, I want to acknowledge that at the outset. Uh, you know, the way that we approach any case has nothing to do with anybody's underlying politics or beliefs. And we take that very seriously. So it's, it's not a factor in this case. What are the factors in this case? <laughs> is that something? Uh, well, I'm not going to talk about this case uh, specifically. Schmidt said he couldn't talk about what's been done to charge someone in Sean's case. Police and prosecutors talk about this case as though it is more complicated than Laura believes. They would need to bring evidence to a grand jury, a group of people who are likely to know nothing about Sean or this case, and that evidence has to be convincing enough to charge a specific person. So we asked if the account that Switch and Lucky gave during their police interrogations might help. Remember, they said they saw people arguing with Sean before the attack, and then the people got in an SUV and drove quickly towards them, hitting Sean. We asked if that account, combined with the SUV left at the scene and any surveillance video police might have collected at the Bossa Nova ballroom or on the street near the crime scene, would be enough to bring a prosecution. Could that hypothetically be enough to prosecute a case? Well, the answer, <laughs> like most law school uh, exams, is it depends, right? Uh, it depends on what other collateral evidence we have that could help us prove what we need to prove in, in the court. Our best case scenario is that if somebody has information and they share that with us, they're willing to put their name behind it. Mike Schmidt is a progressive prosecutor He's similar to prosecutors in other parts of the country who have come into office in recent years on campaigns that promise to undo mass incarceration. Mike Schmidt faced scrutiny almost as soon as he took the job because he chose not to pursue many low-level charges brought by police against protesters in the summer of 2020. And he says he understands that certain communities have a distrust of police. He talks about black people's experience with police, immigrants, and in this case, people on the far left. So whenever that happens, it's really unfortunate because it does make us less safe because it leaves people in the community who potentially are going to go on to victimize others. Uh, that's why restoring trust in our system is, I think, just base level, one of the biggest public safety things that we can do. While Schmidt says that his office is working on a step-by-step -step process to restore trust with lots of people who feel damaged by the criminal justice system, that's not changing much for people who have already been hurt by that system. Homicides and shootings rose across the country in 2020 and into 2021. It was a spike in violence that was rising before the racial justice protests and was likely exacerbated by the stresses of the pandemic. Whatever the causes, the crime wave meant more families were looking for justice. And that's true in many towns and cities across the country, including Portland. As of October 2021, Portland recorded around 70 homicides, the city's deadliest year on record. Detectives had only made arrests in about 44% of those cases. There are dozens of unsolved homicides in Portland alone, hundreds if you count the cold cases. I couldn't help but think that in each one of those unsolved cases, 
there's the possibility that a parent feels just like Laura, a person who feels like the criminal justice system isn't designed to help them. I think my first impression of Laura was that she had been put in a very difficult situation. This is Emily Lebrecq. And that she had a lot of questions and reactions that at first might seem a little bit extreme, but given her circumstances and the length of time and just the background of the case, they were very understandable. Lebrecq is a former prosecutor herself, and now she works for the Oregon Crime Victims Law Center as a victim's rights attorney. She's worked with Laura on Sean's case. Her job is to make sure that Laura is protected inside the legal system. And she says at this point, she believes the police or the prosecutor's office should have made some progress in finding justice for Sean. I have staffed this with a number of other attorneys in my office, um, including my executive director, who she was a very long-time prosecutor. We've worked a lot within these systems. And both think at this point in particular, this is very atypical. This is not um, what we would expect to be seeing with a case that had this level of evidence really in it. And obviously there are things that I don't know. There are things Laura doesn't know. But this wasn't something that happened in isolation. This is something that it seems like there would be more to follow um, than we've seen happening Lebrecht is the kind of person who chooses her words carefully. She acknowledges there are a lot of reasons police and prosecutors can give for why progress hasn't been made in Sean's case. I think we've had an, a significant increase in our rate of homicides in Oregon, particularly in the Portland metropolitan area. We've had COVID-19. We've had a decrease in the number of um, law enforcement. My understanding is that they are just... It's an overwhelmed system. But she also says maybe those reasons aren't a good enough explanation anymore for why Sean's case isn't solved. Lebrecht understands Laura's frustration. Even if you grant police and prosecutors the full benefit of the doubt that they have many competing priorities, she wants to know when Sean's case is finally going to be at the top of the list. We were told there were steps that were going to be taken to move the case forward. We needed to hold off. And I think that's understandable. And I do believe that they have steps that they hopefully are going to take to move the case forward. But those were being delayed and delayed. And I think it's understandable that at a two-year mark, a parent would say, well, why isn't this being given any kind of priority? When will it be, if not now? Lebrecht says she's had homicides come to her since Sean's killing in October of 2019. And those cases have moved along much further in the process. That raises questions for her. You know, Laura says that the criminal justice system has not served her well. What's your, what's your take when you hear that from her? I think that for a variety of reasons, it hasn't. I, I can't disagree with her at all about that at this point. Um, you know, this has taken a very long time, and it's something that seems surprising that has taken such a long time. Lebrecht says with how much time has passed, she understands why Laura is suspicious of the police. The deceased victim who has the political background he did that increases her concerns 
I think that's understandable that that has added to her feelings that maybe things aren't being done for a reason. I can't say whether or not that's true, but I certainly understand why you might feel that way at this point. Lebrecht isn't a protester or someone who is out there advocating to burn down the system. She's a lawyer who works in the system and has to work alongside police and prosecutors to help her clients. But even she has questions about the way Sean's case has been handled. And Lebrecht says that it's wrong for police to ask Laura to get Switch and Lucky or any other witnesses to talk. I would hope that that wasn't an obligation that was being put solely on the uh, mother of the victim. I'm, I'm not in law enforcement. I don't know what, what training is involved and things like that. But it's something that I would hope they would be able to find a way to address that wouldn't put that pressure or that obligation squarely on the shoulders of, of a mother or another family member of a deceased victim. Schmidt acknowledges that there's been major mistakes in criminal justice in the past that make it hard for communities to get justice or to feel protected. He says he wants to bring significant reforms to the criminal justice system. But in Sean's case, Laura doesn't believe that anything has changed. When I started reporting this story six months ago, I knew one thing for sure. I can't bring Laura justice. Not in the way police or prosecutors can. I can't convict anyone of a crime. But I can report. So when Laura told me off mic about what she had heard, I started calling my sources, people who I've spent a lot of time building trust with. Laura's information wasn't firsthand, so I knew I had to find its origin point. I tried to trace Laura's information backward to people who might know how she got it, and then to people who might have helped research it. I wanted to find out how Laura got the names of the people she's accusing. Person by person, I went backward, and I finally got a message to a person who allegedly had given some of the original information about Sean's killing to the anti-fascist researchers. To my surprise, that person said they wanted to talk to me. That's after the break. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes. I had been messaging with this source for a few days when they agreed to meet. The person had only told me their street name by that point, but they said they wanted to talk on record when we were face-to-face. The only thing I really knew about this person was that they had been working with one of the people Laura had accused when Sean was killed, and that this person has never told their story publicly. 
so I really didn't know what to expect. But Morgan Kenoki made her politics clear as soon as I saw her. And and just be, can you explain your shirt for? Oh, um, fuck Proud Boys. Between two horizontal yellow bars on Morgan's shirt were the letters F C K, P R D, B Y Z. Yeah, uh, on several occasions I have been assaulted by Proud Boys. Um, I've done my fair share back. I'm not gonna lie, but I. God, I just hate them in their entirety and their core. Morgan told me she spent a few years active in Portland's protest scene. The first protest I ever went to was a Second Amendment protest. And yes, I open carried. I was definitely more of a person on the right than I was on the left at the time. But that was a very different point in my life. Morgan left the activist scene a couple years ago. But she says she got to know Sean at various demonstrations after she shifted her politics and started going to anti-fascist demonstrations in 2017. I wouldn't say we were the closest friends. I say Armenio because he never told me his real name, and I wanted to respect that there was that boundary in our relationship. But we were at several actions together. Um, he always had my back. He was always smiling, no matter how tough the situation was. And... I could sum up his entire process as looking out for the people around him. Morgan first met Sean at a June 2017 protest in the aftermath of Jeremy Christian's attack aboard a Portland train. Morgan says she got to know Sean as someone who would look after people at protests. There was this kid that was being attacked. Um, I don't know their name, but before anywhere else could get there, Armenia was just like on the person and pulling them off this kid and getting them out of there. He just kind of got in a way, like a wall, to protect this kid while the kid kind of got back into the line and covered themselves. I didn't realize it when we were setting up our meeting, but I had actually seen Morgan with Sean before. It was in that January 2019 video where Russell Schultz is getting in Sean's face in downtown Portland. Otherwise, quit being insecure, dumbass men. Get a fucking hobby. Gun range is a great hobby. Go to the gun range more. Why is this your hobby? It's such a dumb I remember the last hobby. time I saw him, we were at a protest at Pioneer Square, and he was giving Brandon Farley and Russell a lot of shit. And the far right group tries to make fun of Sean for his sexuality. One of the far right protesters tells Sean to kiss his male presenting friends, and one of those people was Morgan. He ended up kissing myself and another comrade. I remember joking with my friend Tisa that our first kiss wasn't supposed to be that abrupt. But <laughs> he was a wonderful person, and he was very comfortable with who he was, and I, I love that about him. I had watched that video dozens of times as I did research on Sean's life. It's one of the few videos that exists that shows Sean at a protest. Sean often protected his identity at actions, so there are only a handful of videos of him on the internet. But there's another coincidence involving Morgan that would prove to be much more significant. Do you remember the day of Cider Riot, the, the night that Sean was killed? I do. That would have been the weekend after I had over at my place. The name we just redacted is one of the men Laura's accused in Sean's homicide. When Sean was killed, Morgan had already left the activist scene. She was working a warehouse job in Portland and looking for new friends. So she invited this coworker over to her apartment. I had him over to my house once. We were going to start a uh, Cyberpunk 2020 campaign ahead of Cyberpunk 2077. That's a role-playing video game 
We did about six hours of character creation at my place, just having drinks and laughing. Morgan says when she came to work Monday morning after Sean was killed, she was distraught. I was devastated. I hadn't been very active in the community for a few months at that point, and I hadn't seen him in a while. And that morning, Morgan's co-worker tells her he lost his character sheet for the role-playing game they had planned that week before. We were talking about the Cyberpunk 2020 campaign. He was apologizing to me because he was going to have to redo his character. Um, I'd asked him why, and he said that he had left the character sheet in his glove box in his car, and his car was stolen over the weekend. He said that he had gone to a concert, and he went home, uh, and then it was stolen from his parking lot. And, and what'd you say to that? I hadn't connected, well, I hadn't connected what I believe are dots at that point, but honestly, I had other things on my mind than that. I was just making small talk with my coworker. Do you guys keep talking about it, or, or did the conversation kind of? I asked him about the concert that he went to, uh, some rock concert at the Bossa Nova. That's the Bossa Nova Ballroom, the bar and concert venue that's just a few blocks from Cider Riot the same place I had checked for surveillance video. He said that the show wasn't very good and that he had left early. So he said he left early, but his car was stolen? Yeah, he said that his car was stolen when he got home. Oh, so he said it was stolen from his apartment. Correct. Gotcha. The next day, though, was when we had a more engaging conversation. Uh, I forget which news outlet had gotten it, but they posted some scenes from the crime scene of the vehicle wrecked and stuff like that. And I recognized it as being similar to the car that he had just bought, a four-door silver SUV-type vehicle. And I talked to him about that the next day, and he said, yeah, I think that was my car. When Morgan told me about this, I didn't know what to say. What were the odds that a person whose vehicle was used to kill Sean would work with someone who had protested with Sean. But we were able to confirm that Morgan and the accused person did work together closely during this time. We also filed a public records request. It was for the document of the stolen vehicle report that the accused person filed the day after Sean was killed. The police have confirmed that the stolen vehicle report does exist, but they rejected our effort to get it, citing a public records exemption for open criminal investigations. Morgan connected the dots in her head. Her coworker's car may have killed Sean. And the next day, she saw him at work again. Do you remember what the first question you asked him was? I asked him if that was his car that was involved in the uh, incident by Cider Riot. And do you recall, what he, did he look at you in the eye? Was he, was he like, yeah. He said, I think so. I, I think so. I began asking more questions about it because like I said, it wasn't adding up. Do you remember what you asked him? I do. I was like, when did you leave? What it boiled down to was he had left the show early and then went home, and then the vehicle was back down at Cider Riot about an hour later. This co-worker lived at least a 15-minute drive from the Bossa Nova ballroom, where he told Morgan he was at that night. I know because I've dropped off a letter at this man's house asking if he would talk to me. So that means 
If Morgan's account is accurate, this man claims his SUV was stolen and within a short time was driven back to the exact same area he was earlier that night. Did he talk more about that night? or? Um, as far as just being with him at the show. That's the name of the other person Laura believes was involved in Sean's killing, the person she thinks was the driver. Them heading home back to his place, uh, them getting drunk and kind passing out, playing GTA online and stuff like that. So he said him and went back to yes. play GTA, passed out. Yeah. I was suspicious simply because I knew how hard it would be to steal that vehicle, what the pure likelihood was that he was there and then wasn't, and then an hour later his car was involved in an incident that might have killed my friend. Um, at that point, I was very on my guard. And did, does he know that you know Armenia? Uh, yeah, I made it very clear that was my friend that was involved in the incident. What was his reaction? Apologetic. Um, not necessarily as an act of contrition, but more like a I'm sorry for your loss type situation. And um, did you ever ask him, like, hey, like, did you kill Sean? That I never asked him directly, no. Um, if he was involved in it, I didn't want to spook him and give him a chance to figure out a cover story or anything else. And if he wasn't involved in it, I didn't want to cause an issue in my work environment. What do you think happened that night? I don't think that this vehicle ever made it home that night. Um, it just doesn't make sense to me. I have no evidence to support it, but he was at the Bossa Nova with two friends, which is just a couple blocks away from where Sean was murdered. Just to make this clear, Morgan knew Sean. She also worked with one of the men Laura had accused of being there that night. He was killed. Morgan says that the man told her he went to the Bossa Nova ballroom on the night of the killing, which is just blocks from Cider Riot, the bar. That man also allegedly said he went home that night, but that his SUV was stolen and driven back to the same area he was at near Cider Riot and was used to kill Sean. Morgan found this story hard to believe, so she reached out to someone she knew from her time in activism, someone with more experience kind of sifting through the bullshit and more access to look up information than I do, so. And you trust this, like, their role as a researcher within the anti-fascist community? I trust this person with my life. Once Morgan relayed this information to the anti-fascists, that was the end of her place in the story, according to her. She didn't know how it was researched or how it was given to Laura. She says she's never even talked directly to Laura. And she's never spoken with police either. Your instinct was not to go to the police. Can you, can you talk about that? I don't talk to cops. The experiences I've had with them at protests and the bias that they show, there's definitely a bias within Portland police and I didn't feel comfortable going to them. Morgan isn't as radical as some of the anarchists who protest in Portland. She doesn't live by an anti-police ideology exactly. But she says police violence at protests made her distrust the cops. And another point that's made her skeptical of Portland police is that they simply never contacted her. They didn't visit her workplace, where she worked with the accused, to ask any questions. 
Morgan is a person who had information on this case for two years. Some of this information is what Laura gave to the district attorney without revealing sources. And yet Morgan's story was not made public until we contacted her to follow up on the leads and ask for an interview. Morgan says she's been waiting for two years for the police to do the same, to solve Sean's homicide. This person that was driving the vehicle got out of the vehicle and fled. And no matter where they fled, they had to have been seen at some point. Now, I remember when there was that right-wing individual that was shot in downtown Portland. Morgan is talking about Jay Danielson's killing, where the police quickly identified Michael Rynell as a suspect. Police knew not only who the person was, but they were able to track them down days later in another state and execute a search warrant and end up shooting that individual. But they can't track down someone that may have been driving a vehicle, been involved in the vehicle crashing, and I don't know if you've ever been in a car crash, but you're gonna smash around a little bit in there, leave some type of evidence behind, some type of DNA. Morgan is saying she thinks the SUV not only shows who owns it or other data from the car's computer, she thinks there will also be fingerprints and other types of DNA evidence showing who was inside the vehicle during the crash, or possibly even behind the wheel. It just doesn't make sense to me that they can't figure that out. Do you want Portland police to solve this case, or do you think? I think we pay good money to have them do that. Um, that is kind of their job, and I'd like it if they did their job. If the police came to you, and said, like, hey, we need a statement from you. Is that something you would do? Or if it leads to justice for Sean, then yeah, I would talk to them. Um, it wouldn't be my favorite thing in the world to do. I don't have a lot of respect for Portland police. But for him, yes, 100%. Here I was, sitting on a folding chair in a brightly lit conference room over pastries and coffee in the local public radio office and I was talking to a credible witness who had information about Sean's homicide that had never gone public. She wasn't hiding behind a street name, and she was even saying that she would talk to the police. I don't know for sure if police have slow-walked Sean's case on purpose. I don't know for sure if officers had a political bias against him. But what I do know for certain now is that there are people with information about this case the police haven't spoken to there are more steps that could have been taken. It's possible that Morgan's story wouldn't change the case for the police, but it does add weight to Laura's view of what might have happened that night. And it helps explain her exasperation when police tell her they need more to go on to make an arrest. After the break, we take one final look at where the criminal case stands. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, no, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. No tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. There are essentially two questions that remain unanswered in Sean's killing. Do Portland police have a bias in not solving this case 
because of Sean's political beliefs? And are the people Laura has accused involved in any way? As to the first question, months of investigating haven't given me definitive answers. One of our records requests revealed that around 36 hours after the killing, one Portland police officer texted another this message. Quote, Sensitive information. Kellier is a member of Antifa and is a suspect from the June 29th protests. It is believed that he is one of the individuals who was wearing a black motorcycle helmet, assaulting numerous individuals. The text message goes on to state that police did not have any evidence in those early hours to suggest Sean's killing was related to protests. Police redacted many other messages officers exchanged in the days, weeks, and months after Sean's killing. So I don't know if there were any other discussions about Sean's politics. But I did learn during our investigation that some officers knew Sean by name. And your name's Sean? I've got many names. You can call me that one. So which one's your real name? Ah, you guys have to guess that one. I didn't have to guess. Ah, you're a detective. But other officers we spoke to for this series denied knowing who Sean was, like the former officer who arrested him for interfering with a police officer. You'll remember Tom Pennington said this. Once I had arrested him and submitted the report, I, I moved on. His name never came up again. There are hundreds of officers who work for Portland Police, so not all of them would have known who Sean was. But we also know for a fact that some of them did and were aware of his politics. I can't say for sure if bias is a factor in police actions in this case. But I also can't say for sure why the forensic evidence at the scene of the crime has not been enough to lead to an arrest. So it's understandable why people are suspicious of the police when there's been so little communication and visible progress. Sean's friends and family are people who have all had bad interactions with police. In many cases, they have experienced the type of police violence that was on full display at the massive protests in 2020. And those bad interactions are part of what led them to believe it's likely police aren't doing everything they can to solve Sean's case. Well, the police really hated my son. The reason his murder is not solved is because of who he is, for sure. The police, I'm pretty sure, would never think about doing Sean any favors. If they were to go out and solve it tomorrow, I'd be pretty confident in saying that they could have done that a week after it happened. The cops aren't, like, going to go work hard. Like, we're, <laughs> we're the enemy. Like, and they're our enemy. And here is how Micah put it. Either A, somehow, miraculously, they're being honest for the first time in their life. And they're like, no, we really do just need a witness to come forward and point a finger in the court of law. Or, much more realistically, there is information they want on the other people that were there. You know, I have no proof of this. And I do not in any way mean to slander when I say this. But I definitely was of the suspicion that, during my case, this is much the same thing that was occurring. Where they were kind of attempting to use my case, briefly, as a way to mine information about other groups of people. I can't fully answer this question about bias in Sean's case, because police have only allowed me to see a small glimpse into the work they've done to solve this case. But what I do think the police investigation, to this point, shows clearly is a dysfunctional system that has let down a lot of people. And that earned distrust is why people want police to prove themselves without asking for more trust. As far as the other big question in Sean's case, who killed him? Morgan Kenoki's story seems to lend credibility to Laura's version of events. 
Morgan says her coworker at the warehouse job in Portland told her he took his SUV to the Bossa Nova Ballroom the night of the killing. Remember, that's the club just a few blocks away from where Sean was killed. That coworker then told Morgan he had gone home that night, only to have his vehicle stolen and driven back to the same area where he was previously. And then the vehicle was used to kill Sean. In an effort to verify Morgan's story, you'll remember we requested a stolen vehicle report filed with Portland police by her coworker. Police would not turn over that report. They said it could not be released, citing an exemption for, quote, investigatory information for criminal law purposes slash open investigations or enforcement. I don't know if detectives are investigating the person who owns the vehicle, but if this was just a stolen vehicle report, it's likely police would have handed it over. It seemed like there must be another reason for holding it back, and it seems possible that it's related to Sean's killing. There's been a wall of secrecy around this case, and that's what's frustrating. The detectives won't talk at all. The district attorney wouldn't answer most of our questions. And Laura has received almost no information about what's actively being done to find her son's killers. For Laura, finding justice for Sean has always been what she's needed to heal, to find closure. But with the evidence in this killing laid bare and the police still not making an arrest, it's unclear where she goes after this. It sucks because I know for a fact the police are not doing their job. And I know through the legal system, I will never receive justice. It's just something I have to accept. Clearance rates for homicides across the United States have been declining since the 1970s. Each year, more homicides go unsolved, even as police have better technology and larger and larger budgets than ever before. So maybe it's not shocking that many people across the country protested the police in 2020 after the murder of George Floyd. And while there was a form of justice in that case, it was very much the exception. When killers walk free, it degrades trust in the legal system and in all forms of authority and order, especially if those killers wear badges and are supposed to be the ones protecting us. Portland Police Commander Jeff Bell seemed to agree that this was a chicken and the egg problem. Police need witnesses to solve crime, but witnesses won't come forward because they don't believe police will solve crimes. But thinking about the problem that way implies that there's no way out. There is no answer for which came first, the chicken or the egg. For all the mistrust towards police I heard from Laura and Sean's friends while reporting on this series, I also never heard anyone say they wanted the people who killed Sean to escape accountability. People in power, whether that's the police or city leaders or prosecutors, are the only ones who can get that accountability. It's the way our criminal justice system is set up. And if any of us, the anarchists or the far-right conspiracy theorists or the people in the everyday mainstream are gonna have trust in that system, then it needs to serve all of us equally, even the people who are the most skeptical. What our reporting of Sean's killing has showed is that with time and resources and interest put towards an unsolved homicide, you can unearth new information. But people like Lauren Micah and Lucky and Switch don't have the authority to act on the information and get accountability. So it's not a chicken or an egg problem. It's not a paradox with no answer. The way forward to build trust and heal the wounds of the past is for the system to make good on its end of the bargain. Because when that distrust is left to fester, 
the risk of street violence only grows. Next week, on our final episode of Dying for a Fight, we take a look at how life at the political extreme is becoming more dangerous. Dying for a Fight is a co-production between Something Else and OPB. The show was reported and produced by Grant Irving, Ryan Haas, and me, Sergio Olmos. We also had reporting and production help from Jonathan Levinson and Conrad Wilson. This episode was written by Ryan Haas and me, Sergio Olmos. Our editors are Anna Griffin and Lizzie Jacobs. Fact-checking by Matt Giles. Our theme music is by Deli Girls. You can check out their music at delligirls.bandcamp.com. Music by Nolan Schneider and Pete G.K. Sam Baer is our sound engineer. Executive producers for Dying for a Fight are Lizzie Jacobs, Tom Koenig, and Anna Griffin. Thanks also to Steve Ackerman, Jen Mystery, and E.K. Ekbatola. We had production assistance from Bashak Artin and Mia Warren. Oregon Public Broadcasting, storytelling, and podcasts from all across the Northwest happen only with the support of our members. Help keep access to this critical news and information freely available to everyone by joining OPB as a monthly sustainer or with a single contribution at opb.org pod. Thank you. <laughs>